Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Amen. How you doing, Church on the Rock? All right, then you can have a seat. I uh, just rolled in from Homer um, at 4 a.m. this morning. Yeah, yeah, we took off at 10.30 last night. Um, I have three young girls, uh, my wife and the dog were all with us. Um, so it just takes forever to return from anywhere um, because... <laughs> You know, people need to go to the bathroom, and then the other 30 people forgot that they had to go also, so you stop again at the next, you know, bush. Um, So, anyways, but here we are, and um, I'm going to need you to help me out uh, today. So, Steve, I'm going to need some amening from you. I know, whatever, like Lutheran background or something, but it's just like, amen! That's that's how we do it. Okay, all right, good. You ready? Yes. Come on, that was your one chance. I'm the one running on two hours of sleep here. Like, amen? Amen. All right, we'll see what happens. Um, While we were down there, we got to be a part of um, my son and daughter-in-law's baby reveal. um, And most likely with, I think it's like an 85% probability, it's a boy. Um, So I know, I'm super stoked. Although I told my son, Caleb, this is Alaska. Baby's going to be Alaskan, and this is a place where the men are men, and so are the women. So, um, <laughs> just in toughness, that's all I was talking about. Um, okay, move on, Jonathan. Uh, but it, it has me thinking about Deuteronomy, because we're wrapping up our series in Deuteronomy today, um, and really the book of Deuteronomy is asking a really precise question, and the question is this, what will this generation do with the promise of God. Because the generation before them had failed to enter into the promised land. God had already given it to them. He had already guaranteed it to them. He was inviting them in, but they gave in to fear instead of faith, and they missed out on it. They didn't get to go into the land. In fact, all of the fighting-aged men were going to die in the wilderness over a 40-year Period, And now we're on the edge of the promised land again in the story. And what we're wondering is, will this generation believe God? Will they have faith to actually step into all that he's promised for them? And so we're sort of at this uh, hinge point moment for the nation of Israel, but we're at this moment again. And what we've discovered as we've made our way through this series is that God wants to communicate with his people that God is actually going to be really clear with them about his desires and his passions, but he's inviting them into something much bigger than any of them could have ever imagined. Now, I don't know um, for you, but uh, maybe you grew up around the strong, silent type, or maybe just the silent, silent type. I think for many of us, those father figures in our lives, or maybe it was an employer that you had, but those um, authority figures in our lives often tend to be somewhat silent. It's like you really want to know what they're thinking, but you don't 
seem to be able to get it out of them. Now, there's something, ladies, you need to understand about men um, in general, um, and it's this. Um, one of the questions that men dislike the most, at least on repeat, is the question, what are you thinking? Because, and this is no exaggeration, quite often the answer really is nothing. And I know that sounds impossible to you because you're always thinking about something, you're solving some problem, you're thinking about something. But when men answer that question, no, that's exactly, in fact, it feels like a mini vacation to think about nothing. <laughs> like there's decision fatigue going on. It's not like I want to get away from everything. It's just like, it'd be really nice to think about nothing right now. And so men have like this nothing box. And so when you ask the question, what are you thinking about? And they say nothing. And you're like, oh no, I so know that is not true because people are always thinking about something. I want to clarify people by people. You mean women because <laughs> men sometimes are just thinking about nothing uh, or at least they can't put words to whatever vague thing it is that's rolling around in their heads, uh, but it tends to lean towards not expressing their feelings. When you talk about emotions, um, of the five primary emotions, women tend to express the majority of them rather freely and quite often. Men are very emotional creatures. They just tend to express one emotion. What is it? Man, you guys are so judgmental. <laughs> Good night. But, but here's the reality, and, and as men, as you get to know yourself better, and you get to be able to put language to what's being expressed as anger, you might actually realize that what you're feeling is insecurity. Uh, what you're feeling is lack of control. Uh, what you're feeling is fear. But men tend to express all of those emotions in this vein of what appears to be anger, and the reason is because anger is a strong emotion. And so I found myself over the years beginning to try and put more effort into identifying what the real emotion I'm feeling is so that when I have a conversation with Kitri, I can actually be humble enough, be transparent enough to say, actually what I'm feeling right now is afraid. But that's not a strong emotion, so men don't like to express it. And then I'll express that, and then I head into my nothing box, and the conversation is over. Um, uh, so... But the strong, silent type, I think a lot of guys, and in a place like Alaska in particular, um, you maybe grew up with a father figure who you always kind of wondered what they were thinking, unless it was disapproval. And then you felt like you knew it right away. And in fact, I think we have a tendency to sort of read disapproval into things that actually aren't disapproval at all. Uh, my, my son, I didn't discover this till much too late, but I have a, apparently a terrible habit um, if you've ever driven with me a long distance in a car, um, I do it routinely. I'll be driving along, sitting there in my nothing box, and breathing, and I'll do this. for like extended periods of time. I'm not even thinking, I'm just letting the air out. Like I, <laughs> but here a few years ago, my, my son started asking the question, um, are you upset about something? I'm like, no, it's not that I know of. I need to ask again. I'm like, I'm starting to get upset. No. <laughs> because he would read that like as disapproval. Something must be wrong. Something must be going on. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think there is. Uh, everything's fine. 
But what I realized is that I have a tendency to spend the bulk of my time in expressing myself in correcting rather than affection, appreciating. I can remember um, my first commercial fishing job. My skipper was like the classic Alaskan fisherman, Norwegian. His hands were like as big as my chest. He would just grab that web and he could just rah. He was a homesteader, like Harold Ingebrigtsen. I've told you some stories about Harold, but Harold was, not only was he not very good at communicating, Harold did not communicate. Well, he at least didn't communicate verbally. You always knew when Harold was upset. He would um, have a cup of coffee always in his hands, almost always cold, and it was always those Folgers crystals. Like, yeah, that's right. Like, um, boat coffee is what it was, um, to a T. And, uh, and Harold would always have a cup of coffee, and Harold had built, literally, he had built his own commercial fishing boat, a limit saner, and so he knew everything about the boat. Harold was a mechanical genius. I mean, genuinely a mechanical genius. He could fix anything, he could build anything, and he knew everything about his boat. And so when we were on the water, heading around to Togiak or heading into Prince William Sound or wherever, Harold would hear every little ding, tick, and knock on his boat, and it would drive him crazy. And he would be, and rightfully so, concerned that something catastrophic could happen if someone didn't take care of whatever was rattling down in the bilge. But we didn't hear it. We thought that's just how a boat sounds. But Harold, Harold heard everything. And Harold would sit there at the wheel, cruising along at negative two knots, because he was always saving fuel. <laughs> that's backwards, in case you're okay, anyways. Uh, and, and he would start to sip his coffee more aggressively, like, and he'd set it down, and the cup was empty. He'd slam it harder and harder. And so my friend Dennis and I, who were two of the deckhands, we started to, like, pick up on these cues, but we had no idea what Harold wanted from us. And so if you asked the question, like, everything okay? You want us to do something? He wouldn't answer the question. He would just slam his coffee cup down, get up and go down into the bilge and find whatever it was rattling around or, you know, put the engine back on. <laughs> it's like Harold just would go take care of it, then he'd come sit back down, not say a word. And so I had had enough of this at some point. If you know anything about me, I'm not super good at the passive-aggressive thing, but I'm pretty good at the aggressive-aggressive thing. And so we got back to Homer. We're on the docks, and um, me and Dennis and Harold are on the docks. And I'm like, Harold, we need to talk. I know you don't talk, but I'm going to talk. So I'm going to, listen, Harold, I am so grateful that you gave me a job, commercial fishing, because I don't know anything about commercial fishing. I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, but you gave me a job as a green deckhand, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, but I cannot spend the entire season trying to figure out what you're thinking. I will do anything you want if you'll just tell me what it is, but I can't play this game. <laughs> and I went and got a job at McDonald's. No. <laughs> Harold's, Harold's response, which I understood meant I, I hear you and, and I agree. Huh. Let's go. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> like, I just want him to tell me what he wants. Here's what you need to understand about the nation of Israel and the nations that they're surrounded by. All of the other nations had gods and goddesses that they were worshiping, but they had no idea what they were thinking. In fact, they were always trying to guess at what they were thinking, and they always thought they were angry with them. And so when your ox died, you were trying to figure out why the gods or goddesses were angry with you and what sacrifices you should make in order to make up for some offense that you don't even know that you have actually created. 
And they were always wondering if your crops died or your cow died or whatever it was, if a storm came or if there was flooding, like what have we done wrong? And they won't tell us and we don't know what their expectations are, but if we just make sacrifices, they'll be happy because they need us to make sacrifices. And what Israel has discovered is that their God is nothing like the strong, silent types. In fact, their God has gone over the top to communicate with them because he wants to be known by them. It's interesting, in fact, when they first come out of Egypt and they're about to head into the wilderness and God invites them to Mount Sinai, originally he doesn't just invite Moses to come up and have a conversation with him and get the Ten Commandments and come back down. He invites the entire nation to come to the foot of the mountain and he's going to speak to all of them. But the nation of Israel is terrified of God. And so they say, Mo, you go. Like, we don't want to be anywhere near this. You go up, find out what he has to say, and then you come back and you tell us about it. But God would have spoken to the entire nation because he wanted all of them to know him. But Moses goes up and receives the word of the Lord and then returns and gives it to the people. But here's what God is communicating to them from the very outset of this journey. It's this, I desire to be known by you. I'm not going to withhold my will, my passion, my intentions, my affection for you. I am nothing like the other false gods and goddesses. I am a God who communicates, who desires to be known by his people that he knows. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. We're gonna spend the bulk of our time right here at the end of Deuteronomy. This is what he says, this command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you to understand. And it is not beyond your reach. I want to just pause there for a second. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I just don't understand the scriptures. And sometimes it's because they've held on to a translation or something that is really difficult to understand. And, and sometimes it's because they just haven't spent enough time in it. But one of the most common things I hear in the arena of preaching and teaching is, I've never been able to understand God's word, and now I feel like I'm starting to be able to understand it. And when you couple it with story and experience and teaching and preaching and disciple-making, all of a sudden people can begin to understand it. But here's what God has told them from the very beginning. It is not too difficult. I'm not trying to give you something you can't get a hold of. I'm trying to be crystal clear with you. Verse 12, it is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it and obey? It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask, who will go across the sea and bring it to us so we can hear it and obey? No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. There's this perception of the law of God that the intention of the law was to tell you how bad you are. And then you could meet Jesus. But actually the law includes the provisions for when you break it, how you can also enter back into right relationship with God. Here's what you need to know about the Old Testament. You were in relationship with God by faith back then, just like you are by faith now. 
And God actually gave them the law and he gave them the provisions for sacrifice and all of that so that they could live in right relationship with him, not so that they would discover they cannot live in right relationship with him. That's a very different way of looking at it maybe for a lot of us. He says it's not far from you. I mean, if you think about the world that they're in, they're always wondering who are the oracles, who are the people who can ascend to God and bring back God's word to us, who are the people that can cross the sea and bring back the message to us. And what he's saying is I put it right here. I've made it accessible and available. It's in your hands. It's in your hearts. It's right here. You know why? Because I want you to know me. You need to understand something about God. Um, the word need does not apply to God in any way, shape, or form. In fact, in the book of Romans, or in Acts 19, it makes it really clear that it says um, uh, that he does not need anything, right? He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he made the earth and the world and all that's in it. He created everything. He has access to all of it. God doesn't need relationship with us. We need relationship with God. And so he's making it available and accessible. Which brings me to the signal is strong, but it's usually the reception that is weak. Husbands, you've probably also had this experience before, or maybe I should just only include myself because I seem to do this sort of thing fairly often. My wife and I will be out to dinner with somebody or we'll be at their home and I'm sitting at a table and I'll be telling a story and just blazing along in my story and I'll suddenly feel this sharp jab in my calf from her shoe under the table. <laughs> I'm usually oblivious when it first happens. And then I look over and she's smiling and nodding, but she's also saying, I'm going to kill you if we get home. Like, she's like, the story you're telling right now is really hurtful to them or it's really embarrassing to me. Could you, I miss the cues. Like I should pick up on them. You think I pick up on them more over time. It's worse when I'm off my medication. But the reality is like sometimes I just miss the cues. I don't pick up what she's trying to throw down and she needs to let me know in no uncertain terms. Stop now. But then there are other times where it's more deliberate. Like we know exactly what's expected and yet we deliberately choose the opposite. I know you've never done that, but I know there are some people at other churches who have done that sort of thing before. Uh, but I'll give you an example of this sort of thing. Um, in Homer, uh, if you've ever been out on the spit, and you've, they're around town as well, but um, you've seen the tsunami sirens. You've seen them before, anybody? Uh, there are these round discs, you know, huge discs, and they're stacked on top of each other. And that siren, they test it once a week, and it is so loud. It's like the, I can keep going if you want. It's a lot of breath I blow out regularly. Um, uh, so loud. And then it's followed up by this as a test. If there was an actual tsunami, you should get to higher ground. There's pictures. You can go look at them. A good friend of mine, Joshua Velstra, a photographer, took one here um, when the last earthquake happened. Um, but if it happens in the summertime, what you will see is all of the non-locals making their way off the spit as quickly as possible. Like <laughs> campers half hitched up, backwards, bicycles hanging out of cars, like get our stuff together. We've got to get off. Because, you know, the tsunami is going to come and it's going to just wipe out the spit. Now, if you live in Homer, you know that every time the sirens have gone off for real, there has never been a tsunami that came other than the one time when they didn't even have sirens. 
And so here's the picture. All the people are coming out. You can see the stream of cars coming off the spit. And all of the locals, mostly my friends, like the ones I was just out spearfishing with this weekend, are driving onto the spit. Like there's an entire line of cars driving onto the spit because they're all thinking, let's go see if it comes this time. Like, it's like a community event. It's like dip netting across the bay or like, hey, the tsunami siren went off. See you on the spit. And we'll see if it comes this, maybe it'll be a good wave and we can surf it, right? It's like, they do the exact opposite of what you're told to do in that moment. And I think often we have the same sort of response to God. Well, we'll see. I'll test this. I I know the siren's going off right now. I know you're warning me. I know you've given me your word. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go and see for myself. And and the reality is that someday there will probably be a wave that comes. And Homer will be really small again. (laughs) But we have this tendency to want to just see for ourselves. Test it for ourselves. What it really boils down to is a lack of trust that God's intentions are good and that he's right about what he says. I often find that if I were to ask the question, would you like to hear from God? How many of you would say, I'd love to hear from God? Come on, yeah, okay, three of us, this is so good. I'm glad the rest of you came today, I don't know what you're gonna do, but um, uh, how many of you would like to hear from God? Like you had all kinds of stuff in your life you'd like to hear from. I've often found that you have to be really careful when you say that, because what you may hear may be something you don't like at all. And we have a tendency to take um, the things that we hear from God that we like and we hold on to those and we cheer for those. But then the things that we don't like, we're like, "Mm, not so much. And the reality is that if you want to hear from God consistently, you have to hear all of it from him. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 29. It's a challenging passage of scripture, but it's not just challenging for us. It's challenging for the culture it was actually written into because this is not new. Romans 1, verse 18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. He's saying, listen, you could just observe the world around you, and the logical conclusion that you would come to is there is an all-powerful, sovereign God. I mean, even one of the most pronounced atheists today, Richard Dawkins, makes this observation in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. He says, "Um, listen, I know that the world appears to have design." But you must ignore that if you're going to discover the truth about the world. This is exactly what Romans 1 is talking about, that in the observable world, the conclusion should be that there's a creator, that this creator is all-powerful, that his invisible attributes are made known. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Verse 24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God 
for a lie. Verse 26, this is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sexual relations with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved or earned. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Sound familiar? It sounded familiar to the original listeners also because none of it's new. It's actually the byproduct of not trusting God. That's really what it boils down to. See, God doesn't need your obedience. When we obey him, he's not like, whew, I'm valued finally. You know, kind of like you with your kids, you get more and more irritated when they're disobeying, but it's actually more about you than it is about them. God is not like that. He actually calls us to a certain way of life strictly because of his deep concern and passion for us, not because he needs his ego boosted by our obedience. He isn't telling you what he needs. He's telling us what we need because he cares. His signal is strong. It's typically our reception that is weak. I remember hearing an atheist ask one time, if God wanted to be known, then why didn't he reveal himself more plainly? And I thought to myself, how much more plainly could God reveal himself? I mean, through the created world, through Jesus coming in the flesh, through his written word, like if he wanted us to know him, what more could he do to tell us about himself? He has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us. Which brings me to Simon Says. Have you ever played the game Simon Says? Yeah. Uh, let's try it real quick. Um, Simon Says, raise your right hand. Simon Says, put it down. Simon Says, raise your left hand. Put it down. Oh, I saw that. That was an easy one. The goal of the game, right, is um, to trick someone into doing something Simon didn't say, right? So Simon says, do this. Simon says, do that. And then all of a sudden, they throw one in, and then you're like, oh, I did it. You tricked me. Can I tell you something? God is not trying to trick you. Like, like when it says, God says, it's just what he says. It's, it's what he's telling you, and it's the truth. And it's for your good. How would you like to know the will of God in any given situation. Wouldn't that be so nice? Like, how many of you would like to know that right now? Like, like, I've got some questions. We've got some direction we need. We're trying to get some things done. I would love to know the will of God right now about this thing. And here's what I've discovered over the years is there are several ways you can know the will of God. I'm gonna give you three of them in just a moment, but there's several ways you can know the will of God, but often we know the will of God in some specific areas and we currently aren't doing it. Oh, that'll preach all day. That was like a visceral response. Like, ah! <laughs> but you know it's true of you. I know it's true of me. Like there are things God's already spoken to me. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm not sure I'm ready to do that just yet. But would you tell me about this thing? Right? This happens 
all the time with my kids. Girls, I want you to go out and pick up all your toys off the deck. Okay, can I ask a question? No, you cannot, because this is the 87th question. Since I told you to do that one thing, you still haven't gone and done that one thing. But after you do that thing, then we can talk about the next. You can get an answer to the next question. In fact, routinely in my house, uh, and this has happened so many times over this weekend, um, I'm like, nobody gets to ask another question ever. <laughs> nobody gets to ask another question until that last thing gets done. You know it's us, right? Like, Lord, I really need an answer about this. And, and the Lord's like, yeah, but what about this? That, that person I said, you, you need to forgive. That area of your life I said, you need to bring into alignment. That, how about let's, let's take care of this so that when I give you the answer to this, it will produce what I actually desire for you. That's exactly what he's doing with the nation of Israel. Knowing the will of God can seem like a really challenging thing, and yet I actually don't think it's all that challenging. There are three ways to know the will of God. I'm gonna give them to you real quickly here. And, and the first one is just what I call the written will of God. In fact, it's really important if you've ever um, written your will, uh, which the older I get, people more frequently are saying to me, you should make a will. I think I'm going to kick the bucket tomorrow? Like, I'll get around to it, right? But, but what happens with a written will is that um, there's clarity in a time of crisis. It's actually a gift that you can give because clarity is a gift. And God gave his written word. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the scriptures or the Bible, the written word of God. In fact, I was just having this conversation with these guys that I'm spearfishing with this past weekend, and one of them says, um, I, just, I only use the King James Bible because it just doesn't make sense to me that we took the King James and then we back-translated it into Greek and then we translated it into the ESV or the NIV or whatever. I said, no, no, you've totally misunderstood how that whole process works. In fact, from the time that the King James Bible was translated, and I'm not saying it's inaccurate, don't, you know, I want no haterade on the interwebs, um, but, but from, from the time the King James was written, we actually have thousands more manuscripts in our hands to compare the text with, to, to see if it's accurate. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumrani Scrolls were found, we pushed the writing, um, the uh, uh, manuscripts that we have back another 1,100 years, so a couple thousand years from our time back to the earliest manuscripts we have. And you know what they discovered? That the manuscripts back there are identical to the ones you have in your Bible right now. They've gone to great, it's called textual criticism, and they've gone to great lengths to verify the reliability of the biblical text. The next closest book to the Bible when it comes to textual criticism and verification is Homer's Iliad, and it isn't even in the same ballpark with the scriptures. Like, the scriptures have tens of thousands more manuscripts to compare with than Homer's Iliad will ever have, and nobody's wondering if we have an accurate copy of Homer's Iliad, Right? But here's why you should be critical of the scriptures, because their claims are much more serious than Homer's Iliad. Uh, their claim on your life is much more serious. But here's what I would tell you. It has absolutely stood the test of textual criticism. I, I have every confidence that the text I have in my hands is the original text that was handed down. 
the written word of God is so important because here's what you need to know as we look into these other two briefly, the written word of God will never contradict the other ways that God reveals his will. And I often hear people say, God told me to, and I'm like, no, he didn't. because I'm aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> okay, first one is the written will of God. I just refer to it as pen and ink. The Hebrew word for word or written word is the word debar. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul is writing to a young preacher named Timothy. And this is what he says. All scripture, or the written word is what he's referring to, all scripture is breathed out by God or spoken by God, and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given his written word because he can be really clear in his written word about his intentions and his desires. The guys we were out spearfishing with the past couple of days um, discovered that um, there are uh, greenling, these kelp greenling, they're little fish, somewhat tasty, but there are certain ones um, that are blue-greenling. They look almost identical to the others on the outside, but they have little blue dots on the side. Um, and then when you shoot them, um, which they're not always easy to shoot, um, when you shoot them and you bring them up, their gills are blue inside, their lips are blue inside, and when you fillet them, the meat is like fluorescent blue. Like, it's the craziest looking thing. I'll post a picture later. Like, fluorescent blue meat. And my friends discovered that if your wife is nursing a child and she eats that filet, the milk turns blue. They discovered it by accident. And so now all my friends are looking for are the blue greenling because they want to see if this happens again. So several of them have newborns, and they, we shot a bunch over the weekend. They're like taking them home to test the theory again to find out if that's why the milk turned blue. Here's what I know for a fact, though, is that what goes in will come out. In fact, what you choose to take in will color what you see in the world around you, what you believe about God. And if you aren't routinely taking in the word of God, you are taking something in. And what we take in will come out. It will color the way that we see things. The written word of God. And the second one is this, the revealed word of God. The two Greek words for word are logos and rhema. And they're used in kind of a distinct way because the word logos is actually used um, to describe the person of Jesus, which is an interesting way to describe Jesus when it's translated word. But if you translated it as logic or rationality or reason, John chapter 1 describes Jesus as the logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Everything that was made was made through the word. Jesus is described as the word of God, and this is what we would call the revealed word of God in the person of Jesus. If the written word of God is pen and ink, then this one is pictorial. It's a living, functioning illustration captured vividly for us in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. We get to see the life of Jesus lived out, and in so doing, we get to see in the flesh what the Father is like. It is the revealed will of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I love this. Long ago, God spoke, check this out, many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. You wanna know what God is like? The son is the revealed word of God. He is the thing that makes sense of everything. And the last one is the rhema will of God. If there's the written will of God, pen and ink, and there's the revealed will of God, the pictorial will, then there's the rhema will of God, which is the personal. I find that often we want to go here first. God, what do you just want to say to me personally? And he's saying, well, there's some things I've said corporately that will help inform what I want to say personally to you. And if you neglect the things that I've said to everyone in the written word, then you'll actually misunderstand what I'm trying to say to you personally in the rhema will that I have for you. But we often just want to know, what's your will in this situation? And yet God's told us his will in all kinds of situations in very general terms. And so if you do a search on the will of God, if you look up that phrase in the scriptures, you will actually discover that there are several places where it's used, and they're often things like this. This is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the general will of God, but it actually informs how you will understand the personal application in your own life when the rhema will of God is presented. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I commanded you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. Like the Lord will bless you and he will bless the land if you'll just listen and obey. He's inviting them to, to come close, to draw close, to hear his voice, and then to begin to live, and he wants them to prosper. He wants them to experience his goodness. Verse 17, but if your hearts turn away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. It's interesting because God isn't saying, um, I'll be mad and I'll make you pay. He's actually just declaring a reality that when you move out from under the protection and the provision of the Lord, then what you actually experience out from under that is wrath, is judgment. He's saying, I want you to stay right here because out there, out there is destruction. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make 
Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Verse 20, you can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've often wondered over the years, and I've heard other people express um, concern about the two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the question that's been asked is, didn't God know what Adam and Eve were going to do? And the answer is, of course he knew what they were going to do. It's the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God. He sees everything from beginning to end. But knowing something is different than making something happen. And what I've discovered over the years is that actually both of those trees in the Garden of Eden are a gift to humanity. And they're a gift to Adam and Eve. Because in the absence of choice, relationship doesn't actually exist. If you don't have a choice, then love doesn't actually exist in the relationship. And God didn't need to give them a thousand trees of the knowledge of good and evil. They actually needed one choice in order to experience what he created them for, and that's real relationship. He didn't need it, but he knew that they needed it. And so he places the tree in the garden. And here's what I'm telling you. He has continued to give us a choice over and over and over again, not because he needs his ego scratched, but because we need relationship with him. The choice is an invitation. Would you stand with me? Speaking of God's personal will, because there is the rhema will of God, there is the revealed will of God in the person of Jesus, and there's the written will of God in the scriptures, the word of God. But this personal piece, I think, really matters. For years, I misunderstood, I misinterpreted what happens with Moses on this whole journey, because all the other fighting-aged men have died at this point, and now the next generation is about to enter into the promised land, but there's one death yet to happen in Deuteronomy, and it's the death of Moses. It seems so unfair Like, literally, the reason that Moses has been told by God that he doesn't get to enter into the promised land is because he disobeyed God once. I'm sure, Moses wasn't perfect, I'm sure, but there was one critical moment. It was this moment that was really poignant. Um, Early in their story, in the journey, they're in the wilderness and Israel starts complaining we're so thirsty. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Egypt was so great. I can't believe we're gone from there. Like they're delusional, but they're thirsty. And, and so Moses is crying out to the Lord on their behalf. And the Lord tells Moses, I want you to strike the rock and water is going to flow out of the rock. So Moses takes his staff, the same one that the sea has been split with, and he strikes the rock and lo and behold, a gusher. Water just comes pouring out of the rock. It's this miraculous moment. All of Israel drinks from the water. Now fast forward quite some time and they're complaining again. I know, shocker. But they're complaining again and they're really thirsty. And so the Lord speaks to Moses again. And this time, this is what he tells Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and water is going to come out from it. But Moses has had his fill. It's like me as we're trying to get out of our campsite yesterday and realizing I'm gonna get home at 4 a.m. I'm like, girls, unless you want to ride on top of the car, get in and be quiet. Like, 
Like he had had his fill. He's like ready to go. They've held him back for way too long. And the Lord says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and water's going to come out. But instead, Moses in his anger takes his staff and he strikes the rock again. And water comes out. But the Lord says this to Moses. Moses, because you did not honor me, because you did not do what I asked of you, you will not enter the promised land. Does that seem harsh to anyone else? Like, what? This dude has put up with so much. I mean, he's had people like you that he's been wandering around with for a long time. A lot longer than eight and a half years. Like, Moses has endured. He has contended for the people on behalf of the people. He's a friend of God. And yet in this moment, in this one act of disobedience, the Lord brings a consequence so severe. Here's what I've discovered over the years. You're going to find out how I know this in just a moment. But it actually had nothing to do with God's affection for Moses. In fact, listen to what happens at the very end of Moses' life. Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 8. And then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishkah, where his, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zaar. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. I've always envisioned this scene like Aladdin, you know, like we're on the carpet. It's a whole new world, a new exciting point of view than the Gav and Naphtali. He's like, here's where all your kids are going to live. Here's where the nation's going to live. You get to see all of it, but you don't get to go in. And this is the moment when Moses will die. Listen to the description, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. Who? The Lord buried Moses. This is the only person in the scriptures and most likely in all of human history that God performed his funeral. God takes his friend. Died there, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. It was just God and Moses. Moses was 120 years old when he died, but his eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. What it's telling us is that Moses could have lived a lot longer. He was still raring and roaring and ready to go, but God had said this was the time, and it was the time for Israel to enter the land, and Moses wasn't going in, and so God scoops up his friend, takes him someplace nobody else knows about, and does the funeral himself for Moses. God's affection for Moses was not diminished in the slightest, even though the consequence seems so severe. And here's why God brought the consequence. Because God was actually painting a picture for generations to come of what he was like. And the first time he tells Moses, strike the rock and living water will flow out of it. Because Jesus, the rock of our salvation, 
will only be struck once. And from then on, whenever you speak up, whenever you ask, water will flow freely. Grace will flow freely. And in Moses' anger, he tarnishes the picture that God is painting for thousands of generations to come. And God says, I have to deal with that. And I deeply love you, Moses. Now, here's what you need to know. In that moment when Moses dies and God performs his funeral, do you think Moses is in heaven going, man, I really wish I was back down there in the promised land fighting with the giants and toiling away. No, Moses actually immediately experiences to be be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he is in the promise fully in that moment. Do not believe for an instant that what God does with Moses communicates anything about God's deep affection for him. And often I think when we experience the chastening of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, it's often about a whole lot more than even just our life right here, right now. It's for generations to come if we would respond well. So Jesus, my heart's desire is that my life would come into alignment in those places you've already spoken clearly so that I could hear you speak in those places that can be really challenging to discern. Would you help me, would you help us to remove those barriers through obedience so that we could step fully into all that you have for us? And would you teach us to trust you because you are trustworthy. Tensions are good. Your mercies are new every morning. Your tenderness towards us is overwhelming. Just show us your face again. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.